We have therefore reached the point as a nation where we must take action to save the Constitution from the court and the court from itself. You tell them, FDR. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Right then, he's right I got now. The I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you Yep Yes, I'm stuck in From the Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK, people-powered radio, 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP, up in Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, we'll be talking about Wisconsin momentarily, and, of course, in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the world-famous Bradcast. Uh, all right, we got a lot to talk about, um, and uh, but what I really want to talk about is the need for Democrats to unpack the GOP's stolen Supreme Court once and if they can ever regain control of the House, the Senate and the White House. Let's say, for example, after next year's election. Wouldn't that be cool? Now, of course, uh, that re relies on the American people stepping up and doing what is right for this country in next year's election. And the uh, interests who would like to block that idea, hopefully being unsuccessful in doing so this time around. Unpacking the Supreme Court by, yes, packing the Supreme Court. It makes sense. Or expanding it. It does. Yeah, well, it does. especially since it's stolen, so yeah. Now, I realize there's a lot of... Uh, hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Uh, there, there's a lot of ifs there before we can even get to that point, but I would argue that the discussion or the debate itself for how to take back the majority that Democrats should have had on the high court by now, that that discussion in and of itself might prove to be a corrective thing for the far-right majority that currently controls the court after it was stolen for them by Mitch McConnell's unprecedented obstruction of Barack Obama's uh, nominee, Merrick Garland, for a full year until a Republican could be placed into the White House to fill the vacant seat of the late Antonin Scalia with Justice Neil Gorsuch. 
Today's GOP seems to believe it's their birthright to hold a majority on the Supreme Court, and you will forgive me if I disagree. But could changing the number of justices on the high court result in pushback from Republicans that might then prove a threat to democracy and the rule of law and the court system itself. We will speak shortly with an attorney and former Wisconsin candidate for that state's Supreme Court, where they hold elections for such things, an idea that I have noted I am no fan of personally. Anyway, we will have uh, much to discuss with Madison, Wisconsin attorney Tim Burns shortly about the many times, seven in fact, in history that Congress and the president have, yes, decided to change the number of justices on the highest court in the land. We'll talk about why they did it and the disastrous effect it had on our democracy as Mitch McConnell tried to pretend on the floor of the Senate yesterday as his uh, hypocritical but often effective Jedi mind tricks continue there. <laughs> you mean his effective lying and propaganda on the Senate floor? Uh, you said that, not me. I did. Uh, we will also talk about a very big election coming up on Tuesday in Wisconsin with Tim Burns. So you're not going to miss want to miss any of that. But first, a few other quick items that I want to hit today. Most notably, speaking of courts, the Trump administration has lost yet another Obamacare legal battle it's second in this past week, just as the president has revived his drive to destroy the 2010 health law, according to Politico. A federal judge ruled late uh, on Thursday in Washington that the administration's efforts to expand the availability of health plans that do not meet coverage rules under the Affordable Care Act is a deliberate and legal, quote, end run around the federal health care law. The ruling addressed insurance known as association health plans. These are skimpy plans which cost less than many Obamacare plans, but they also provide much fewer benefits. In fact, and often they don't cover anything. And in fact, it is in violation of the requirements of the Affordable Care Act, which, by the way, apply to all health care insurance plans now, not just the ones purchased via the uh, Obamacare exchanges. But yes, even yours, the one that you might enjoy under your employer's plan. You get a lot of benefits out of the Affordable Care Act as well. Those plans are much better now, thanks to Obamacare. Just in case Democrats forgot to mention that part of the Affordable Care Act, uh, the ruling on Thursday was by U.S. District Court Judge John Bates, who is a George W. Bush appointee. So before Republicans start telling you that liberal judges are trying to undermine your uh, president, this was a George W. Bush appointee. Uh, it's also notable because, as uh, Ian Milheiser, a law expert, points out, that this ruling is both very big on the merits themselves, but also big because Judge Bates wrote this opinion. Bates, uh, Milheiser says, is a very highly respected George W. Bush appointee. Most importantly, he is rarely reversed at the appellate level. So this could be um, a key ruling. That one comes just one day after another federal judge rejected the Trump administration's embrace of work requirements for people on Medicaid, 
concluding that those new rules that were allowed by the administration for use in Kentucky and Arkansas actually violate the Medicaid program's primary goal of delivering health care coverage to low-income Americans. Medicaid work requirements and expanding coverage options outside of Obamacare rules, those have basically been the linchpins of uh, the Trump administration's approach to health care, if you can call it that, by, you know, making health care harder to get. That's their approach to health care. Uh, several other Trump health policies are still facing legal challenge, but the legal setbacks also come as Trump has vowed once again to dismantle Obamacare, which he called an absolute disaster for some reason the other day. That, of course, has roiled the healthcare industry itself when the uh, Trump DOJ decided to uh, reverse its position and side with a federal judge who had ruled last December that the entire Affordable Care Act, which is almost a decade old now, by the way, that the entire entire thing is unconstitutional and has to be tossed out. So uh, a lot of these moves, particularly now calling for the Affordable Care Act to be killed entirely, has infuriated Republicans they are still smarting as political notes from their failed efforts to repeal uh, to well, not to repeal and replace, but just to repeal Obamacare back in 2017. They would prefer to attack Democrats in the 2020 elections for Democrats efforts to pass a Medicare for all measure, which they deride as socialized medicine, according to Politico. But wait, I thought Obamacare was already socialized medicine. That's what they told us when. When they fought it in 2009, that this was going to kill health care in this country because it would be socialized medicine. But wait again, I thought that Medicare, remember, Medicare itself was supposed to be socialized medicine. That's what Ronald Reagan told us back in the 1960s when he said, and I quote from a record voiced by Reagan himself, and distributed by Republicans who were opposed to the uh, new plan to then keep the elderly from, you know, dying prematurely. Reagan said, quote, pretty soon your son won't decide what he will do for a living. He will wait for the government to tell him where he will go to work and what he will do. He said that uh, Medicare uh, was uh, an existential threat to, quote, our traditional free enterprise system that would, quote, invade every area of freedom as we have known it in this country, resulting in you and I spending our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in America when men were free. Good Lord. (laughs) That's what Ronald Reagan said about Medicare. So, yeah, you know what? It's always socialized medicine anytime we talk about improving our terrible health care system in this country. Anyway, uh, Trump said this week that uh, don't worry, um, the Democrats are the ones who have let you down. Obamacare doesn't work and that the Republicans will soon be the party of great health care. By the way, Democrats won control of the U.S. House in 2018 in no small part by pillaring Republicans for their attacks on the Affordable Care Act and the coverage that it has provided to some 20 to 30 million Americans, even though the uh, GOP could not reach an agreement on what should replace it. And they still haven't. 
Uh, so we will see if the administration will uh, appeal that ruling as well and if it will go up to the all-important U.S. Supreme Court, which we will talk about in a bit. But there's also a very, very big election coming up in Wisconsin uh, for their state Supreme Court. That's on Tuesday. We'll talk about that in a second, and then we will talk about saving the U.S. Supreme Court as well. Don't go away. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Welcome back. To the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. You don't have to wait for 2024 uh, for an election. We're we're having one on Tuesday. At least Wisconsin is. Democrats are hoping they can maintain their hot streak recently in Wisconsin at the polls. Uh, This Tuesday in a state Supreme Court race that has major implications for the future of that important key swing state. Conservative judge Brian Hagedorn, Hagedorn, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, we'll call him Hagedorn, is a protege and former legal counsel to now, thankfully, former Republican Governor Scott Walker. Uh, He is running against liberal-backed judge Lisa Neubauer. Now, uh, according to TPM, strategists on both sides of the aisle agree that the election has far-reaching implications for Wisconsin's future including the upcoming redistricting fight following the 2020 census, voting rights in advance of the 2020 elections, and legal challenges to the GOP agenda that was forced through under Walker, including the uh, unprecedented lame duck session that was called by the GOP legislature after Walker lost last year's election to Democrat Tony Evers, but before Evers could be sworn into office, In that session, they adopted a host of power grabs for the legislature, stripping powers from both the new Democratic governor and the new Democratic attorney general in the Badger state. GOP strategist Brian Ressinger says the stakes are really, really high. He's a former advisor to both Walker and Republican Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. He says the importance of the Wisconsin Supreme Court race is difficult to understate when you look at the standpoint of all the reforms that have happened in Wisconsin over the last decade or so. I would argue it's uh, difficult to understate if you look forward to a undoing some of uh, the damage that has been done to Wisconsin over the past decade and um, improving the outlook in potentially a very big way. The statewide election on Tuesday will be to fill the seat of a retiring progressive-aligned Wisconsin Supreme Court justice. Conservative-backed justices currently hold a 4-3 to majority on the court after Rebecca Dallet, 
won last year. She was backed by former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder. She won her race last year, and now the justice retiring this year is also aligned with progressives. So Democrats would need to win the race on Tuesday um, and defeat a retiring conservative-allied justice next year in 2020 in order to finally claw back a majority on Wisconsin's highest court. So conservatives currently control the court four to three. If progressives can win on Tuesday, conservatives will still control the court, but they will be just one retirement away. And that retirement's happening next year from progressives taking a majority of the Supreme Court in Wisconsin. If they do that in 2020, it would be the first time since the mid-2000s that uh, progressives dominate Wisconsin's highest court. Also, by the way, the court would then be composed entirely of women, which would be pretty cool. That would be super cool. Yeah. Uh, If the uh, progressive-backed Neubauer wins on Tuesday which uh, strategists uh, in both parties right now think is the most likely outcome. Then again, they thought the most likely outcome in Wisconsin was that Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016, so take that with a grain of salt. But uh, if Neubauer wins, uh, the court retains its current 4-3 to conservative majority, and then liberals have that very, very strong shot next year because uh, Dems would have a huge advantage. The election next year in 2020 coincides with the state's Democratic presidential primaries and a Milwaukee mayoral race. Now, if the conserv- so-called conservative Hagedorn wins on Tuesday, Conservatives would then have five votes on the court and would be likely to maintain their majority for years to come. So, yes, this is an important election for the state where the right has uh, controlled the uh, Supreme Court for pretty much the past decade, allowing them to uphold controversial laws that were passed by Scott Walker and the GOP to dismantle the state's public sector unions that impose strict photo ID restrictions at the polling place, created one of the country's most effective gerrymanders, one that locked Democrats out of power uh, in the state legislature for a decade, uh, kept them in the in the minority, even in years when Democrats won significantly more votes statewide. For example, last November, uh, they won a majority of the votes statewide. That's why Democrats won uh, the, the governor's mansion. They won the attorney general and they got a majority of votes in the state assembly. But Democrats only wound up taking one third of the seats in the assembly, thanks to GOP gerrymandering. Now, with the next census and new redistricting coming up after 2020, control of the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin Uh, And the inevitable battle in the courts over the new maps that will be drawn will be huge for Democrats. Having that advantage, presumably, uh, at the Supreme Court is huge. And, of course, that affects the rest of the country as well, given how important Wisconsin has become to presidential elections, if nothing else. The race is also the biggest test to date of whether progressives remain as motivated as they were when they were heading into the 2018 midterms. Um, 
Strategists in both parties see Wisconsin as one of the three most important states on the 2020 presidential map, along with Michigan and Pennsylvania. And Democrats recently announced that they will hold their presidential national convention in Milwaukee next summer. That's how important Wisconsin now is. Uh, but we'll see if Democrats are still as fired up as they were going into 2018. Democrats, uh, Democratic candidates outperformed Hillary Clinton by an average of 10 percentage points during special elections in 2017 and 2018. But that has now dropped to just 0.4 percent in uh, the 22 special elections that have occurred since last year's midterms according to data compiled by Daily Coast. So are Democrats still as fired up as they might need to be? We'll find out on Tuesday. The Wisconsin GOP, as you may remember, has a fierce get-out-the-vote machine backed by the Koch brothers and other major right-wing networks. But the right also does not have a great candidate for the court in Judge Hagedorn. This guy helped found a private religious school that bars teachers, students, and parents from being in same-sex relationships. He made speeches to a group that advocates making sodomy illegal and sterilizing transgender people. And as a law student just over a decade ago, Haggerton wrote uh, uh, pieces on his blog addressed to, quote, fellow soldiers in the culture wars, it called Planned Parenthood a, quote, wicked organization and the NAACP a disgrace to America. In one of the blog posts, he said, quote, the idea that homosexual behavior is different than bestiality as a constitutional matter is unjustifiable. Yes, there is no difference in homosexuality than uh, with bestiality. According to this guy. According to this guy. He's, Who wants uh, to be a, chief, a big judge on Wisconsin. Wants to be a, uh, yeah, a Supreme mm -hmm. Court justice in Wisconsin. He said, there is no right in our Constitution to have sex with whoever and whatever you want in the privacy of your own home or barn, he said. So this is a big race on Tuesday, um, and a lot of money is now flowing into it. Uh, we'll be watching it, of course, closely. There has been no public polling of the race. And, of course, there are notorious concerns about many of Wisconsin's non-transparent voting systems. So this is a big election. Uh, and even while I'm no fan of electing judges to Supreme Courts and forcing them to campaign and take money from various public interest groups, on the other hand, it does at least give the voters a bit more direct access to who determines the constitutionality of their laws for decades at a time. That's much harder at the federal level when it comes to the U.S. Supreme Court, or at least many think it's much harder. It doesn't necessarily have to be, at least if Democrats are able to gain control of the Senate, the House and the White House next year. In that case, there is nothing, to my knowledge, in the U.S. Constitution to keep them from unpacking the Supreme Court that the Republicans stole from the Democrats in 2016. But what would that do to democracy in this country? Well, we will speak to attorney and former Wisconsin State Supreme Court candidate Tim Burns about all of these topics right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
The Bratcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We have been discussing for some time on this program the idea that once, or I should say if, Democrats ever regain control of the Senate, the House, and the White House, one of their first efforts among many, unfortunately, should be packing the U.S. Supreme Court with however many additional justices are needed to regain their majority on the court that they should rightfully have at this point, following what we regard as the theft of the court by Republicans and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who, for the first time in our nation's history, refused to even allow a meeting or committee hearing, much less a vote on a presidential nominee to the high court. Given McConnell's unprecedented actions in blocking Barack Obama's highly qualified and frankly rather moderate nominee Merrick Garland for nearly a full year following the February 2016 death of Justice Antonin Scalia, all the way up until a Republican president would be sworn in in January of 2017, and then McConnell's unilateral Senate rule change to do away with the filibuster for Supreme Court justices so that Trump nominee Neil Gorsuch could be rammed through onto the court to retain a five to four Republican advantage there. It might make sense to call, given all of that, it might make sense to call the idea of a court expansion under Democrats an unpacking of an already GOP-packed court. There are, as I understand it, no constitutional issues, according to experts, with expanding or even decreasing the number of justices who sit on the Supreme Court. It could be done with simple majorities in, the, in both the House and uh, Senate and a signature by the president. And doing so, we have argued, would go a long way towards reversing the illicit, I would say stolen, hard right ideological bent of the nation's highest court for the next generation. This month, the Washington Post finally began to notice this call to expand the number of seats on the court as well. As the paper's Michael Shearer wrote a week or two ago, the once remote idea of adding more justices to the Supreme Court to change its ideological bent is prompting growing discussion within the Democratic Party, creating a new frontier for presidential candidates looking to display their liberal credentials. Former Attorney General Eric Holder, who recently decided against running for president, became the latest figure to embrace an expansion of the nine member court in recent talks at Yale Law School. He questioned the validity of the current court, given Senate Republicans' refusal to vote on Judge Merrick Garland after President Obama nominated, nominated him to the Supreme Court. Given the Merrick Garland situation, he said, the question of legitimacy is one that I think we should talk about, Holder said. We should be talking about even expanding the number of people who serve on the Supreme Court if there is a Democratic president and Congress that would do that. 
His comments come as activists launched an organized effort to prod the presidential contenders on the Democratic side to say publicly if they're open to such ideas. Presidential hopeful Senator Kristen uh, Gillibrand of New York has called adding justices or imposing term limits on them, quote, interesting ideas that I would have to think more about. Well, please start thinking, Senator. The future of the republic you wish to lead may depend on it. Peter Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who has been making a bit of a stir in his bid for the Democratic presidential nomination of late, has responded to questions by inviting consideration of either adding justices to the court or rotating them on and off the court. He's also discussed a 15-justice structure for the court to replace the current nine-justice structure. He would uh, suggest five Democratic appointees, five Republican appointees, and five more chosen by the other ten. Both Senators Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, uh, also presidential hopefuls, uh, they have said, according to The Hill, that expanding or packing the court should be an option on the table as part of a larger conversation among Democrats about the direction of the U.S. judicial system. Republicans have long been galvanized, the Washington Post notes, by the promise of moving the Supreme Court to the right, making it a sometimes significant factor in their voting decisions. And now Democrats and progressives, angered by the aggressive GOP push to remake the federal courts, are finally becoming equally impassioned, prompting the discussion of far-reaching ideas for remaking the nation's highest legal body. The concept of expanding the Supreme Court, uh, like the phrase court-packing itself, fell into lengthy disrepute after 1937 when President Franklin D. Roosevelt, frustrated that conservative justices were blocking New Deal programs that he considered to be crucial for the country, sought to add six much friendlier justices to the court, prompting an outcry even from allies at the time. On Thursday, without mentioning his own theft of a Supreme Court seat with Justice Gorsuch or his own unilateral changing of the uh, Senate rules to make it even possible, Mitch McConnell took to the Senate floor to decry what he described as proposed radical changes from some progressives to rules, norms, and traditions in order to change the makeup of his stolen Supreme Court following the installation of hard-right and accused sexual predator Justice Brett Kavanaugh. After they failed to defeat the nomination of Justice Kavanaugh last year, liberal leaders decided the underlying structure of the American judiciary needed to be radically overhauled to suit their whims. They set out to rehabilitate the absurd notion of court packing, a notion that would threaten the rule of law in our American judicial system as we have long understood it. I hope the lion's share of our Democratic colleagues will speak out forcefully against exhuming this thoroughly discredited idea. <laughs> threaten the rule of law and our judicial system? Really? A thoroughly discredited idea? Well, all of that is rich coming from Mitch McConnell, of all, of all people, but we know he's an unapologetic hypocrite. 
In fact, members of both parties have decried the fact that Supreme Court confirmation fights, including Kavanaugh's, have increasingly degenerated into drawn-out battles featuring personal attacks, bitter recriminations, and charges of bad faith, the Post explains. Well, maybe, but Obama's first two nominations of Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor went generally fine for the most part. They achieved the 60-vote threshold without needing to change Senate rules and only hit a roadblock once it became clear that Republicans were about to lose the majority on the court. That's when things started getting really ugly, and apparently Republicans seem to believe they have some constitutional right to control of that court. America's founders probably would not have been surprised by the various calls to change the size of the high court, says Wisconsin attorney Tim Burns recently in an article at The New Republic. Within 20 years of establishing the new federal government, he writes, our early statesmen had changed the size of the Supreme Court three times to ensure that a politically hostile judiciary did not thwart the goals of the party controlling Congress and the presidency. Over ensuing years, the size of the court changed a number of times, none of which Burns argues turned out to be a threat to either our democracy or our core values as a nation. So why are so many frightened about the idea of doing it again now? Well, we've become a very skittish nation, it seems. Joining us to add some political and historical insight here is Tim Burns, who also serves on the board of the Wisconsin Justice Initiative and the National Board of the American Constitution Society. Welcome to the broadcast, Tim Burns. Thanks for inviting me, Brad. I'm happy to be here. Glad to have you here, sir. We've got a lot to discuss, but as a Wisconsinite, you've got quite a bit of direct experience uh, when it comes to huge fights over Supreme Court battles in that state where uh, folks actually vote statewide for justices. Republican-endorsed judges on the state uh, high court now hold a slim 4-3 to advantage. But there is another key Supreme Court election coming up on Tuesday between the liberal-backed Judge uh, Lisa Neubauer and Judge Brian uh, Hagedorn. Hagedorn, is that how you say it? Um, Hagedorn. Hagedorn. Uh, he's a protege of uh, now former Republican Governor Scott Walker. Very quickly, before we get to the Supreme Court stuff, uh, what do you see as the stakes right now and or the outlook for Tuesday's statewide Supreme Court election in Wisconsin and as importantly, I think, the one that uh, is set to follow it next May, I believe, on the same day as the 2020 Democratic presidential primary up there. Um, so the stakes are huge, Brad. If uh, we're going to get back to the Wisconsin that I moved to mm-hmm. 10 or 11 years ago before Scott Walker, I, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, since it's lurched to the right, mm-hmm. um, has changed our state in so many ways, um, including weakening the historically strong labor movement here, making it so no one would even think about bringing a um, partisan gerrymandering case in Wisconsin's um, state court, knowing what would happen in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. If we're going to start, uh, if we're going to get rid of partisan gerrymandering, mm-hmm. 
the place we need to do it is here in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. We can't count on the Supreme Court of the United States for a favorable decision. And the only way we're going to get to the constitutionally correct decision on gerrymandering is if we get um, do away with the conservative tilt of the Supreme Court. We need to win this election uh, um, this coming Tuesday, and um, then we need to win the election for the next justice a year from now. And, and, uh, and do I understand it correctly that if uh, on Tuesday, uh, basically it's to keep a liberal back justice on the court, that would still give a four to three advantage to the conservatives, but then next year one of the conservatives will be leaving and uh, on the same day as the Democratic primary, there will be another election to fill that uh, vacant conservative spot. That could result in a liberal majority on the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin Um, next year. So almost the perfect description that um, by early April 2020, Mm -hmm. uh, if we win the election this year and we win the election next year, we will have a liberal majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Um, There's the current um, liberal incumbent, Shirley Abramson, famous Mm -hmm. um, judge um, nationally, uh, is retiring in her seat is open this year, mm-hmm. and uh-huh. then a conservative is up for election next year. Gotcha. Okay. Well, this will uh, we will be watching it uh, for some reason. The whole nation is uh, has been watching for years that Wisconsin Supreme Court. Moving to the U.S. Supreme Court now. Your your piece at New Republic headlined: Court packing is not a threat to American democracy. It's constitutional. So, what if anything? Does the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, actually tell us about what the size of the Supreme Court, or for that matter, the lower federal courts, is is actually supposed to be? Does it speak to it at all? So the Constitution wisely left it to Congress, as opposed to the court itself, by not speaking to the issue. It gives Congress the ability to organize the court throughout our history. That has always been understood as the ability to determine the size of the U.S. Supreme Court and how many judges are on the lower federal courts. And it was a necessity if we were going to have a democracy of checks and balances, because with without that important check on the judiciary, mm-hmm. we would ultimately be ruled by nine or seven or six individuals rather than by ourselves. Mm-hmm. By giving Congress the power to determine the size of the court, it gives our democracy the power to change the size and change the direction of the court. And we've done it seven times in our history. Why? 
because as a people, we were dissatisfied. The majority were dissatisfied with the direction of the court. So if I understand it, uh, to change the size, it's currently by statute of Congress. You'd have to pass a bill through both the House and the Senate and have it then signed by the president in order to to change the, the number of seats on the high court? Exactly. So uh, you mentioned this has happened seven times throughout our history, and I think it's something that, and you cover it very well. I'm, I'll uh, link folks over to your article at New Republic. But um, just give us uh, a, a couple examples of the times that it has changed during our, uh, I guess, 238-year history of our republic at this point. Uh, why has it changed at the time that it has in some of these key instances? Sure. So um, let me begin by saying we all dream back to this fairy tale time when we were a nonpartisan people. <laughs> um, but the reality is that we were partisan before we were partisan. From the very founding of the government, mm-hmm. uh, we broke into parties. Um, the big money, corporate interest party of the early days of the Republic was the Federalist Party. And in reaction to that party, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison started the Democratic-Republican Party. Mm-hmm. In 1800, 12 years after the founding, there was a landslide election in favor of the more Democratic with a small D mm-hmm. party, the Democratic Republicans. What did the Federalists do in response? Did they go quietly into the night? No, the prospect of Thomas Jefferson being able to name a likely vacancy on the Supreme Court caused the Federalists as mm-hmm. one of their last attacks in office in the spring of 1801 to pass something called the Midnight Judges Act. One of the provisions reduced the size of the Supreme Court to five to make sure that Thomas Jefferson wouldn't have a chance to immediately or soon fill a vacancy on the court. Now, ultimately, the Federalists were unsuccessful because the revolution of 1800, the Democratic-Republican landslide was Mm -hmm. just that. And so by 1802, Jefferson was able to, um, um, in in Congress, were able to increase the size of the court back up to six, where it had begun, and Mm -hmm. then in 1807, increased, increased it again to seven justices. And the reason to do that was quite clear at the time. They wanted to change the direction of the decisions of the court or what they feared would be the decisions of the court. Mm. You also note that uh, Abraham Lincoln and the Republicans first increased the size to 10 to prevent judicial attacks on his war policies. Uh, And then after Lincoln's assassination, Congress reduced the size to eight to prevent the new president, Andrew Johnson, from harming Congress's reconstruction efforts. So I'm I'm noting those because, well, you got Thomas Jefferson, you got Abraham Lincoln, uh, both revered by Republicans. And I think it should be noted that, uh, you know, in the history of of the Republican Party, 
Uh, the GOP has not been against changes like this to the uh, to the Supreme Court, despite what Mitch McConnell seems to be saying now that it's a discredited fantasy idea. So, Tim Burns, what happened in 1937 then when, uh, as the Washington Post describes it, the uh, practice of changing the size of the uh, court fell into some disrepute? When FDR tried to add six new justices, he was a very popular president at the time. So why did that effort fail? So a, a bit of a history lesson here. Why did Franklin Roosevelt decide to change the size to begin with? Um, because in May 1935, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down key pieces of the New Deal legislation. And in, then in 1936, uh, when Republicans hoped Franklin Roosevelt would uh, uh, get voted out of office, he had another landslide election. Um, and it was a landslide not only for Roosevelt, but the Democrats. In fact, the House ended up with a four-fifths Democratic majority, the Senate with a three-fourths mm. Democratic majority. And Roosevelt knew what was standing between him and saving this country's economic system were nine men on mm -hmm. the Supreme Court. So in the first days of the new term, he proposed the what we call the court packing mm -hmm. legislation, the judicial reform legislation. And here's the truth. We've, for the past 70, 80 years, we've been told that this was a failure. But the reality is this. The legislation would have passed Congress and looked like it was going to pass Congress, except for three things. First, in the spring of um 1937, after Roosevelt proposed the legislation, the Supreme Court completely reversed itself on the constitutionality of state minimum wage law, signaling mm. that they were finally getting religion about the New Deal. Mm. Second, in the summer, in the early summer of 1937, one of the hardcore conservatives announced his retirement from the court. So Roosevelt was going to be able to name a justice to replace him. Mm. But even with that taking place, even with the switch in time by the Supreme Court that saved the nine, and with the announced retirement of the conservative justice, mm -hmm. Roosevelt was still going to win the court packing battle. In fact, if you look at the newspapers going up to the end of the debates, it was clear that the Senate Majority Leader Joe Robinson from Arkansas had a majority in the Senate to um, pass the legislation, mm -hmm. and no one feared that it would fail in the House. So what happened? August 1937, Joe Robinson, Senate Majority Leader, had been promised the um, first vacancy on the Supreme Court by Roosevelt. Mm. He had every interest in passing this legislation, mm. and he had the votes to do it. He went home to the Methodist building in D.C. Um, one night in the final weeks of debate, 
and died of a heart attack. Oh, my. And so <laughs> the big proponent, the, the muscle in the Senate to get this done, died of a heart attack. And that, together with the fact that the Supreme Court had switched its position and vacancies were already started to help happen, mm. the legislation just lost its oomph. But to describe it as a failure um, in a political um, disaster just wasn't what happened back in 1937. Look, Franklin Roosevelt packed the court over the uh, next um, three or four years with New Deal-friendly justices, and for 40 years in this country, because of President Roosevelt and um, those justices, we had an unbelievable middle class in the country because of New Deal legislation and a court that wouldn't stand in its way. We became so strong economically that we were able to have a civil rights revolution in this country and start living up to the promises that we made at our birth as a nation. So I don't look at court packing as a failure on Roosevelt's part. It was a stunning success while the legislation didn't pass because of one senator's mm -hmm. untimely death. The idea of changing this court so it didn't stand in the way of our democracy succeeded. And I suspect uh, put the existing justices on notice uh, about uh, to think twice about the various decisions they were making. I don't know, Tim Burns. I'm just still reeling from the idea that our current Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, is rewriting history by uh, talking about a discredited fantasy from the 1930s, the way uh, he describes what happened there. And I do note, by the way, that this week um, the Senate GOP is now proposing a constitutional amendment to keep Supreme Court uh, seats at at nine, and it has about a dozen uh, co-sponsors, all Republicans, naturally, in the Senate. Uh, Tim, you note in your piece at New Republic that uh, critics of the idea of expanding the court uh, include uh, some at the New Republic itself. Uh, they argue that if Democratic uh, Democrats violate the norm of a nine-person court, Republicans will do the same once they return to power. Uh, this tit-for-tat allegedly will spell the end to an independent judiciary and our democracy. Uh, well, isn't there some truth to that? I mean, would we be looking at a case where every time a different party then next takes control uh, of the White House and Congress that they would add more seats to then give themselves a political advantage on the court? Sure. It's entirely possible, but that doesn't spell the doom of our democracy. It says our democracy is working. The political power rests with the voter instead of nine lawyers, mm -hmm. judges on a Supreme Court. And, you know, the surest way for Democrats to prevent that from happening isn't to talk about norms, because Republicans show no um, yes. uh, love of norms. No. The surest way for Democrats 
to do it is the same way the Franklin Roosevelt and Thomas Jefferson did it. If if you're going to have a revolution, have a revolution. Win big and make sure that the Supreme Court doesn't stand in the way mm. of things like the Affordable Care Act that I, I'm sure you saw in the newspaper like I did, mm. Brad, that once again the Trump administration is talking about overturning um, the Affordable Care Act in court. Think about that. President Obama and the Democrats won an overwhelming victory in 2008 and used their political capital to pass this legislation. And suddenly five justices can overturn our democracy. Let me read you just um, if you something from Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address. Mm-hmm. So, if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decision of the Supreme Court, the instant they are made in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers. Tim, uh, very quickly, uh, two two more questions I want to hit you with real quick. Um, of course, the historical examples were uh, uh, that, that you cite in your article at New Republic. Uh, all of those, of course, came before Fox News and Twitter and 24-hour propaganda from all sides. In recent years, the Supreme Court has already, I would argue, fallen into some disrepute for a number of uh, horrendous decisions, gutting the Voting Rights Act back in 2013. Uh, as progressives uh, see that, of course, I know right wingers speaking of uh, the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare, they did not like the court's ruling on uh, the Obamacare a few years. Would this move uh, adding to the courts, uh, taking back a Democratic leaning majority that I've argued is rightfully should be uh, the Democrats right now? Wouldn't all of this risk uh, making the court be seen as even more illegitimate by, well, you know, about half the population? Well, you know, it's interesting, Um, Brad, you began the segment by mentioning that I had a recent run for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And I was out there talking with middle American voters for a year. And one thing was clear to me, everyone except judges and lawyers think our courts are highly political. We're kidding ourselves if we um, think it's something other than a highly political institution. De Tocqueville in the 1830s said that in this country, every major political dispute eventually finds its way to the courts. With that in mind, how are we going to avoid having a political court? 
judges are never going to restrain themselves. They may restrain themselves under threat from someone like Franklin Roosevelt, but our founders well knew that it wasn't in political people's wheelhouse to restrain themselves very, very well. The only way we restrain folks is by winning elections and having um, checks and balances on um, putting one branch of government against another, just like the founders intended. It won't bring anything in dis- into disrepute. There have always been these predictions of the utter ruin of our democracy if the size of the court has changed. The truth is, the court's been viewed favorably even after its size has changed. Tim Burns' article over at NewRepublic.com is headlined, Court Packing is Not a Threat to American Democracy. It's Constitutional. We will link over there. Uh, We'll also uh, send you to uh, Tim's uh, Twitter feed, which is at Burns4WI. That's Burns, the number four, WI as in Wisconsin. Uh, Tim, are you going to run for that seat next year on the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court? Um, I don't believe so, but um, I understand a very strong liberal candidate will be running, and that person will have my full support. Thank you, Tim. Tim Burns is an attorney in Madison, Wisconsin. And once again, we'll point to uh, his work over at New Republic. Tim, really appreciate you joining us today, giving us this historical perspective on this important conversation that I personally would like to hear uh, from a lot more Democratic presidential candidates and a lot more progressives. So thanks for uh, helping us kick it off today, Tim. Thanks so much for having me, Brad. My pleasure. All right. I got to get out. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. Always good to hear from you. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com, and I hope you will find, follow, and share everything we do on the Facebooks and the Twitters where you can find me at the Brad Blog. My thanks particularly to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help keep the Bradcast on your public airwaves. You're the only ones that do it, so thank you. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.